Well, I want to make two things loud and clear. One, because now it is the season. Merry Christmas, Bridge. The Bridge Ministry, College Ministry. Merry Christmas. In a few weeks, you'll be on break and you'll be celebrating Christmas. The celebration of the birth of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. And the second thing I want to make loud and clear is that I am not related to Luke Melrose. Even though we, are, we look the same, we, we both are dashingly good looking. Even though both of us married way out of our league. Even though both of us are quite funny. He's a little more funny than I am. Just a little. And both of us love movies. We are not related at all. Now, some of you already know who I am and know Luke Melrose already, but the problem is a lot of people at this church don't. And so people have called Luke Evan, and they called me Luke constantly. And sometimes we run away with it. Like, we'll take a picture of me filming someone and say, wow, it was really fun to film someone. And he posted on Luke's account, and people say, oh, wow, great job, Luke. And it's, it's me filming, not Luke. But Luke and I do share a passion for movies, a little unhealthy sometimes because we'll stay up late watching movies as a, you know, we should be asleep. But we're both extremely excited for this movie. I don't know if you know about it, but it's a movie called 1917. Who actually knows about this movie coming in 1917? Awesome. Three of you really hit the college demographic right there, Evan. It doesn't matter. I am excited regardless because not only am I, I, I love movies, I love history. That's one of the things I actually majored in college. And the movie 1917, if you haven't figured it out, is a movie about World War I. And for some reason, there's like this renaissance happening where a lot of movies are taking place during World War I. It's about two British, British soldiers going down the line to warn their fellow com, you know, comrades not to do this attack because it turns out they're going into a trap. They're going to attack the German lines, but in reality, they're running into a trap. The reason why we're excited about this particular film is that this film supposedly, for the two, two and a half hour runtime that it is, I don't know how really long it is, the entire movie is supposedly one entire continuous shot. There's no cuts, there's no edits, it's just one continuous shot following this plot for two hours. And as a movie person, both Luke and I, we just, we are excited to see how did they pull off this feat. But as the, the history fan that I am, I want to learn more about this unique war. Because if you don't know the history behind it, as I'm watching this trailer, I'm thinking, well, these two soldiers don't really need to be there. Actually, it wasn't the original plan. Actually, the British had no plans on joining the war against Germany. Even though they had a soft handshake agreement with France, they're like, we don't really want to fight Germany. Like, this is not a war that we want to fight. Let them figure it out. And even the Germans didn't want to fight the British. I mean, actually, fun side note fact is that the British and German royal, uh, the royalty were related. They were cousins. And they respected one another. They didn't want to fight. But the thing is, that Britain did threat Germany with war if they did one single thing. If they attacked their ally Belgium, little tiny Belgium, the people who make waffles. And actually who invented french fries, but that's another, that's another story. But Britain had a very strong treaty with Belgium. Britain had a strong treaty with Belgium saying that if anyone attacked them, that they will bring the full force of the British Empire, the greatest empire the world has ever seen, to back them up. Now, the Germans heeded that threat. They took that threat extremely seriously. They're like, we don't want to fight the British Empire. 
We'd rather not have to take them on, but in order for us to potentially win this war, we might have to invade France through Belgium, so we might have to take our chances. And for the Belgian people, they were, again, this threat, the strong threat from Britain against Germany brought them comfort because they knew that they had the, the, their backs were covered by this massive power, this country that could come to the defense at any moment if they were picked on or persecuted or attacked. And so Germany took their calculated risk and decided to invade. And as we learn, it wasn't the, as we learn through history, Germany did not conquer France in time. Britain did enter the war, and after four long, brutal years with millions of lives lost, the Germans eventually conceded. They lost. Because they, even though they listened to the threat, they didn't take it seriously enough to where they thought maybe they can beat France and end the war before the British can come. Now for Belgium, they were, you know, even though they went through a hard war as well, they were joyful that they had such a strong ally. But as we're going to read in James chapter 5, God is, is threatening a, a certain type of person in this passage, a very strong threat that should bring fear to some and also comfort to others. But if we aren't careful, we can be the ones that receive the threat of war, and this is something that even though Germany had a chance to win that world, first world war, we have no chance of winning this fight. If we reject the threat of God's judgment, we'll enter, enter into a fight that we have no chance of winning. Again, Germany had a good chance of maybe pulling it off, but we are, you know, we could potentially be fighting against God, and that is a fight that we're not going to win at all. So the lesson that we need to take from James chapter 5 is that we need to heed the warning that God is sending to those who pursue wealth only for themselves, and we need to trust that he is keeping an account so if you want to open to James chapter 5 and get ready to read along, this is a continuation of a warning of the rich. Pastor PJ preached on James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16 earlier, reminding the rich not to be haughty or cocky or confident because they can potentially predict the future because we cannot predict the future. But also, as we'll, you know, be learn, as y'all will learn in James chapter five, verse seven, this will be a comfort for those who hear this warning. As Belgium was comforted by the threat of war, that Germany was fearful of the same threat of war because Belgium knew that this was coming to comfort them, and for Germany, they knew this was supposed to drive them to fear, not to do it. So what is the warning? What is this really, 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 really strong warning that God is trying to tell us tonight? James chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and the corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Merry Christmas, by the way. No, this is a strong warning from God to us to make sure we're not pursuing unrighteous wealth, to make sure we're not using wealth for evil purposes. Again, this is an intense threat to the rich coming down on their unjust actions and to comfort those who are being persecuted by said rich. It's a threat that we need to take seriously. That's why verse 1 starts the way it starts off. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This James is not messing around right now. When I read this passage for the first time, I go, oh, wow, this is strong. Because it's meant to be strong. It's supposed, it's supposed to, it's meant to drive fear into those who are committing this. And just to clarify, and just to clarify things, when he says rich, this is just, this isn't supposed to be just like, not rich people are not evil. Just because you have wealth doesn't make you a bad person. What James is calling out is how you use that wealth. How you use your influence, how you use the power that you have. Are you using it for God's kingdom and to build up his, his kingdom and his glory? Are you using it for yourself instead? And James threatened some Old Testament language right here, some verbiage, weep and howl. This language is seen throughout the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the minor prophets. And this is to show that this isn't a temporary judgment that's coming, like a, a war that's coming. No, this is an eternal punishment that the rich who use their wealth for evil, it's an eternal punishment of hell and God's wrath. And it's supposed to be a deterrent for us not to go that direction. It's a threat that's worth taking note of. So the first point tonight is to don't ignore God's threat of judgment. Don't ignore God's threat of judgment. Because we know what an empty threat when we hear and when we see it. When Lewis says, I'm going to dunk on you, Evan, we go one-on-one in a basketball game, I will dunk on you. I'm not going to take that seriously. And the guy is like four foot eight. He plays soccer. He doesn't play basketball. He can't do anything. But when, when Kellen, the eight four giant that he is, nine six I hear, when he says, Evan, I will go one-on-one with you and I will dunk on you, I will take that as a definite threat because he could dunk that basketball on me. Not because I see his height, but I've seen him in action. I played basketball with Lewis. We're both not good. I've seen Kellen. He was destroying people at the men's retreat. But that is a threat. If he said, Evan, I will dunk on you, I will definitely listen because I've seen him be able to back it up before. So when you hear this threat, God means it and he's very serious. We can just look at God's past faithfulness to see that his word actually means something. I mean, he did promise that he would come and he will die and he'll rise again. He promised that he will conquer death on our behalf. He said he will defeat the serpent. He'll crush its head. And he did. God came. Christ, Jesus Christ came and lived in our place. He died in our place. He rose from the dead in our place. And as a result, we can see God's faithfulness and believe when he says all you have to do to inherit eternal life 
is to have faith in my life, in my righteousness, to trust in me and to repent from your sins, and you will inherit eternal life with me forever. We can trust that because we see his actions. But when God does promise judgment like these, we do, we should trust it because we can look back in the words of scripture and see his faithfulness. And in Ezekiel 26, when he threatens this ancient city, this kingdom called Tyre, we know he's, telling, he's serious about it because most of you don't know where Tyre is. I've never heard of it because people don't live there anymore. Why? Because God had judgment on them. He threatened that you'll be utterly destroyed and the city will never be inhabited again. And guess what? To this day, it's not inhabited. It was completely destroyed and utterly. And so when Christ says in Matthew 19 that it, it is difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, we should definitely take note of that. But Evan, I'm in college. I go to Saddleback or I'm going to a four-year university. I might be in the military. I'm not, we consider wealthy. Well, my question to you is, what are you pursuing? What are you studying and why are you studying it? The reason why it'll be hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven because it can either be, either God is your God or money is your God. What are we pursuing? Is it bad to get a finance degree to own a business? No, it's not bad at all. God used rich people in the Bible for good. People were lifted up, not because they're rich, because they used their wealth for good. You had Joseph of Arimathea. You had Nicodemus at the death of Christ. Joseph of Arimathea gave his tomb to bury the body of Christ. And they brought 75 pounds of pretty much essential oils to make the body of Christ you know, smell right, to make sure it's treated well, as they thought it would decompose, but they had no idea that three days later he would rise from the dead. So again, being rich or pursuing wealth isn't necessarily bad, but are you, are you pursuing wealth for your own self? We have to examine our pursuits and our plans. Because if we're, if we're doing our college degree, if we're trying to set up career, our career just, just for wealth, 1 Timothy, Timothy 6 has a strong warning for that, that if you desire to be rich, you'll fall into, into temptation, into a snare, into a trap, into many senseless and harmful desires that will plunge people into ruin and destruction. We don't have to tell you enough the curse of the lottery who people who win the lottery have a high rate of suicide because all of a sudden people come out of the woodwork to say, hey, can you lend me this? Can you lend me that? Can you help me? I'll send a death threat to you if you don't give me your money. And actually you can see testimony after testimony after testimony of people who win millions and millions of dollars say, I wish I have never won it at all. So again, this is a warning to you in this, in this perfect phase for you as you now are trying to set up your career in your life. What are, check your priorities. Examine your priorities. Make sure you're not potentially going down into this, into this trap. Reject the temptation to ignore this threat. God has a threat towards the wealthy who use their wealth un, for evil purposes. Don't be that person. It, it, there is the temptation to ignore it. You might, have, you might be accruing debt. You might want to be able to move somewhere. You might be able to own a home. Maybe you have your boyfriend or girlfriend, your boo that you want to spoil. Yeah, I need to earn a few extra change for that. Don't be tempted. Reject the temptation. Ignore the threat that God 
Don't ignore the threat that God has for the rich. Instead, use what God has given you for his kingdom. Don't do what the, what the wealthy that James is talking about, what they're doing in, in, verse, in verse 2 of James 5. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. What does that mean? It means that they have so much wealth that it's just sitting there. I mean, here's an illustration. Think about what's in your closet right now. What clothes are just hanging there that you haven't worn in maybe months, maybe years, or maybe a decade that's just sitting there and just getting eaten by a moth? Because the rich are storing up, they're, they're, they're storing up so much wealth that's being unused that their gold and silver are being corroded. And God, he sees that. And, as, and it'll be evidence against them for their eternal, for their eternal punishment in hell. God is going to judge the wealthy for what they don't do with their wealth. And God will judge us what we don't do with ours. Because they, the rich, are going to be laying up the treasure in the, in the last days here on earth. But Christ is saying, no, no, no. Lay up your treasures in something that's eternal instead. Lay up your treasures in heaven instead. The rich are going to be destroyed for not using their wealth. So instead, let's do the opposite. Point number two, use the wealth God has given you for his kingdom. Again, the wealth might not be monetarily. It might not be money. It could be your time. It could be your energy. It could be your talents. That is wealth that God has given you. Make sure you use it to build up his kingdom. I, unfortunately, can easily be like one of those hoarders on TV. I do not know why, but I save the most random stuff in the world. I'm still getting boxes from my parents who, you know, after I, I got married and moved out. So, oh, by the way, here's a box of stuff that you saved. So I'm like, open the box. I'm wondering, what kind of gems do I have in here? I'm looking at it and I'm like, why did I save this shoelace? This is from a cleat I played in my, my, my second to last game in youth football. Why do I have this? Why do I have this random pencil that's like this big? I don't know why I saved this for elementary school. Why do I have all this junk? Why am I tossing it away? Why do I have all these t-shirts? Before I got married, before I moved out my previous apartment, my, my, my now wife, she was my fiance at the time, we went through my closet and said, I need to get rid of some of these shirts. My, my hangers are just bursting forth. And I need to, I need to get, the, some of these I haven't touched in years, I need to give them away. I'm holding on because I'm a sentimental guy. Uh, I'm a softie in the inside. I see this t-shirt, it brings back a memory from like the seventh grade or something. Even that shirt hasn't fit me since the eighth grade. And so I look at it, and, I, and so we start putting shirts in bags, and one bag turned into two bags, it turned into three bags, and turned into four bags. I gave away 50, over 50 t-shirts that I was hanging in my closet that I had for years. It was completely pointless and useless to have them hanging there. So thankfully, God used my wife to get them out of my closet, we donated them, and now someone else gets to use them because they actually need them. But if, I was, if they were just sitting there in my closet, that would be evidence against me before God, saying, why did you, I gave you these shirts, but you never wore them. Give them away. Let them be useful. So let's think, what are, we, what are we holding back? What are we not using? What talent are we not using? What time are we not using? What money are we not using? We need to confess for storing up things that, we need, that need to be used Something that you can do even tonight or even tomorrow is you can meet the needs of people. The things that God has given us is supposed to use for his kingdom. 
We're, we're made to do good. We're supposed to do good to everyone, and especially those in the household of faith. So what can you do? What temporary needs can you provide to people in this room or the people that aren't in this room? What temporary needs can you provide to this church? What temporary needs can you meet to your neighborhood, to your neighbors, or to maybe a stranger that you meet? Meet their temporary needs. But also, as the parable of the talent talks about, or represents that the talent that the servants get, the, the, the talent, the money that they receive is supposed to reset, re- represent the gospel. The greatest treasure that you have, you, have, you are the wealthiest people because you know the gospel. You know the good news. You know how to have eternal life. That even though while we were sinners, Christ died for, that, for us, so that if all we have to do is trust in his life and his righteousness and to reject and repent from our sins, we have eternal life. But are we one that to bury it, to not bring it up? To not let our classmates know that we are Christians? To let our coworkers know that we are Christians? To let the co- our coworkers and classmates, our friends, our neighborhood, our neighbors, that we are Christians and that we want to share the gospel to them? Because if we bury it down, these will be the words that we hear from God. You wicked and slothful servant. Use the wealth that God has given you, especially the gospel. Use it to build up his kingdom. Use it to see more people saved and to see more, deci- more people discipled. You can still meet the temporary needs of people. This is something that I like to do. You don't have to do it. This is something I prefer to do, is that if you ever drive, you ride in me as I drive my car, you'll see random quarters stacked up, very neatly, by the way. So please keep them that way. But these quarters are meant not for me, not for me if I want Taco Bell for 50 cent tacos. No, these quarters are meant for people who have those signs. We might look at them saying, get a job. Yes, they need to get a job. They need to work. But I say, you know what? I'm going to take this need and you know, if they use it for something and I get ripped off, I get ripped off. But I want to say, you know what? I hear is a dollar. Here's $2. Here's $3 in quarters. But can I have three minutes of your time? When I hand it to them out the window, I I ask them the question, hey, here's this book, can I have a minute of your time? How did you get here? And do you know about Christ? My goal of meeting their temporary need, maybe to be able to buy a 50 cent taco at Taco Bell, is is more than that. It's it's trying to meet their needs so that I have a chance to try to meet their eternal need. Because I'm trying to use the little wealth that I have to hopefully give them the greatest wealth that I have, which is the gospel. So what can you do? How can you practically apply in your life? How can you practically meet someone's need? Is it helping someone move in your neighborhood? Then you get to share the gospel afterwards. Hey, why are you so joyful? Well, let me tell you why. I've been saved. Saved from what? Well, let me tell you. Here's a segue to the gospel. Use your wealth. But in order to use your wealth, you need some motivation. And your motivation needs to be, you need to see his kingdom, God's kingdom, greater than anything that we can build. Your school, your career right now is telling you, hey, if you build up your career, if you, build, if you uh, diversify your portfolio, you can make a great inheritance. You can make some great wealth. But to what point? Christ says, don't lay up your treasures here on earth where it will rust and get destroyed. The paycheck that you work hard, so hard for will disappear. First, when you get it, you'll look at the, the pay stub and see, wow, the taxes have just eliminated half my paycheck. A lot of you understand that. 
then you'll, you'll tithe to the church. You'll give to Compass 2020. And that's a good thing to give because you're, you're building up, you're laying, laying up treasures in heaven and trying to reach other people. But then, all right, then you have this relationship you have. And you want to buy dinner for that girl. And please, you know, guys, buy dinner for the lady. Spoil, you, know, you can spoil her to a point. But if, if your relationship is just you spoiling the other person in hopes that they can return love to you, then that is unhealthy. And please talk to your leader. But the point I'm trying to drive is that your paycheck will eventually disappear. The dream job you might have, eventually that career will end. If it's one year, two years, or 50 years, it will end. Your boo, your, your, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, they eventually, that relationship will end if it ends before marriage or ends while you are married because eventually, no matter if you're married for one, two, five, or 50 years, that relationship will end. Things of this earth are temporary. Why do we keep investing so much? Why do we keep putting all the chips on, our ta- on the table and things of this earth that are just eventually going to pass? We need to see that laying our treasures in heaven, the eternal kingdom to come that's going to last for infinity is greater than any tiny temporary thing here and now. So don't store up for this world, but rather store up for the next one. But you need to make sure you have people around you to encourage that. You need to be in your word daily. You need to be digesting God's word to make sure that you understand it. You can remember the kingdom to come. You need to to make sure you're praying daily. Make sure you're not just praying as a checklist, but praying to God for him to give you the strength to continue on, not to be tempted. And you need to make sure, I'm glad that you're here, but to continue in fellowship with your brothers and sisters, your small group and your small group leaders to help encourage you not to store up things here and now, but store up things in heaven. Is it good to have a good job? Yes, it's great to have a good job. It's great to have a marriage. It's great to have a house. But don't compromise your investment in the kingdom to invest just for here and now. I get it. Many of, you, many of you chose Saddleback to save money and that is a wise and good thing. I'm a big proponent of that. Maybe you have debt you want to pay off, but don't compromise the kingdom of God to pay off your debt. Many of you want to move, maybe be able to have a job to move out of your parents' house and live on your own in an apartment or somehow buy a house in Southern Orange County. My wife and I are trying to figure it out. Just start saving now. That's, that's helpful. But don't compromise your investment in the kingdom of God to buy a house, to live here. Don't compromise your investment in the kingdom of God to pursue a a dream job and lose focus what God has purpose for us. And what he has purpose for us is to build up his kingdom here and to get ready for his kingdom to come. But God also gives us another motivation to make sure we're using our wealth rightly. As many of you have, if many of you have jobs, you understand sometimes your boss is watching. And here's a reminder, God, our boss, our eternal sovereign boss, is watching of how we use our wealth. If you don't believe me, look at verse 4, James chapter 5. You have, or sorry, verse 4. It says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. God sees how the wealthy are gaining their money. 
He sees the injustice that they're doing. He sees when corporations cut corners and commit fraud. He sees when wealthy people rob the poor. He sees all that. And only that, he, he, it reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That phrase is, is supposed to remind us that Jesus is going to be returning with an army. And that phrase is saying, the Lord of hosts, the, the general, the king of the heavenly armies is coming against the wealthy. But again, we too are wealthy. And if we're not careful, we can be just like those wealthy. And the Lord of hosts and his army is coming right at us. Because remember, God sees how we're gaining our money. When you're signing off in your timesheet, isn't it an honest timesheet? Did you work the full hours or did you cut out a half hour or an hour? Did you give it your best effort or is there a, 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 a slacking effort and now you're asking for a raise? God sees us how we're trying to gain and earn our money. But not only that, God sees how we're using our money. He sees how the rich are doing it. In verse six or verse five, they lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. If you get riled up because you see wealthy people just driving like 10 Teslas at once and owning 10 million houses, and it's popular today to, to, to look down upon the wealthy, but guess what? God sees it. He sees everything, but he also sees how we're using our wealth. He sees us how we're using our paycheck, how, he's, how we're using our time. Is it for his kingdom or is it just for our own comfort? He sees us how we use our energy. He uses how we use our relationships and our friendships. He sees us how we use the gospel. But not only that, he sees how we use our money, not just for ourselves, but how, we, how people, how the rich hurt the poor, how they persecute the poor. He sees that they are murdering the righteous person. He sees that they, the righteous person doesn't resist them. He sees all that. He sees how, how, how do they murder the righteous person? Because it's an agrarian culture, a, farm, a farming culture. If the rich person steals their wages, if he steals their land, that person will, won't last the winter. They'll starve and, and they'll die. That's how the rich condemned the poor back then. And we can even see it today. But God sees how we use our money, our power, our influence to hurt others, to harm others, to harm his bride to harm people in general. He sees how we're doing it. He sees everyone doing it. So God sees is keeping a record, even though it's hard to believe sometimes, because maybe you're the one that's getting away with it. You're like, I haven't been caught yet. I haven't been struck down by lightning. God doesn't see it. God isn't real. God does see it, and he's being patient towards you. And for those who are feeling persecuted, who are being maybe ripped off by your boss, or maybe ripped off by a roommate who is not paying their fair share of rent or utility bills, God sees it. So point number three, trust that God is keeping score. Trust that God is keeping score. Again, this statement will either bring comfort to you or fear. Just, just like for Belgium, it was comfort knowing that the threat of war, if they were invaded, is coming. That great, the, the British Empire is coming to defend them. And it struck fear into the German Empire, thinking like, we got to fight the British Empire if we do this. In Revelation 20, 12, it describes how there are books being written about us. It's taking account for all the actions that we do and we don't do. 
And then the, and the last day, the day of judgment, we'll stand before God. If we're not followers of Christ, we'll stand before God and we'll be read back everything that was written down in the book of life. What did we do and what didn't we do? And we judged accordingly because God is one that's keeping score. So what do we do with that knowledge? What do we do? Well, it should be, it should be a motivation. It should drive us a little fear, even, even if, if you are a believer, that we need to stop being self-focused in our pursuits. We need to be st- stop being self-focused because God did create us for good. God created us to do two things. One, to love God with all our hearts, our soul, and mind, and strength. And the second thing he created us to do is to love others as ourselves. So instead of stressing ourselves out about the next rent check coming in, or if the paycheck will be big enough, or stressing out what we're going to eat, or I need to buy new clothes because mine are literally are raggedy and old, and I need to get new stuff for my new job. Instead of worrying so much about that, Instead, we're supposed to love God more. We're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God because God already knows that you need those things. He knows that you need food. You need shelter. You need clothing. You need money to pay rent. You need money to pay for gas. He knows that you need it. You need it. He will give it to you. But make sure you're seeking first the kingdom of God. Seek first as you work. Seek first the kingdom of God as you pursue your college degree or whatever career you have lined up, make sure you're seeking him first. And making sure when you live life today, tomorrow, and however you're planning, that you're doing nothing out of selfish ambition. But instead, in humility, count others more significant than ourselves. And not to look to our own interests, but to the interest of others. We need, to sell, we need to stop and examine ourselves. How are we doing with that? What is your, your five-year, 10-year, 20-year plan if you have one? What is the goal that you have for what you're studying or what you're trying to do, what career you're trying to build? What are you doing now? Talk to your small group leader. Allow them, allow God to give them wisdom to help you see where you're going. Get another set of eyes. Sometimes we think we're going the right direction, but sometimes it takes someone else to point out that you got broccoli in your teeth. Allow your leader to point out the broccoli in your teeth, the broccoli in your plan, the broccoli in your your career to say, you know what, that's not the right direction. You're kind of focusing on yourself right now. Make sure you're focusing on his kingdom instead. But as we trust God, trust God that he is keeping score, he can remind us, again, remind us that God sees how wealth is being gained or used. Again, it can be fearful or comforting. It can be fearful for us because he knows what we're, what we're doing. As it says in verse um, 4, that the, the, the evidence against the wealthy is crying out to him. Then that's a call back to Genesis 4. When Cain murdered his brother Abel, when he asked Abel, like, hey, where's your brother? And Cain's like, oh, I don't know. I don't, what are you talking about, God? And God's like, oh, come on, man. Your brother's blood is crying out from the earth. I see it. It's loud. I can't unsee it. So what you think you might be doing in secret, how you might be not working as hard as you should, or what you're pursuing, you're like, no, I'm just going to keep it to myself. God already sees it and he knows it. And that should drive a little bit of fear in us to motivate us to make sure we are using the wealth that we have been given for his kingdom. To see people 
converted, to see people discipled, to see people built up until the day of the capital D when Christ returns. The person that we're celebrating his birth, he's going to come back. But we need people to remind us. But also it should comfort us that God is keeping score. And for those who you feel like you have been ripped off, your boss is terrible. They're not paying you enough. Your teacher is a terrible person. Or for you, your professor, I should have a higher grade. They're ripping me off. My roommate is not paying enough rent. They're not doing their fair share. Be patient and don't take up arms. We have to trust that God is going to bring justice. This should be a reminder to us as this is a reminder that James is trying to remind the Christians who are dispersed all over the Roman Empire, say, take this threat and use it to comfort you. Because in the next verse, in verse 7, that you will probably have preached on the next time you are here, next Sunday, it says to be patient, therefore. Be patient. I have a warning to the wicked. The, wicked, the, the wealthy will have their just due. So be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Until he returns to bring his eternal reign, be patient. And that's not a popular idea today. Maybe, maybe your professors or maybe your friends are saying, no, we need to take the wealth of the wealthy. That's just sitting there. We need to take it ourselves and give it to the poor ourselves. We need more Robin Hoods. And when God is saying, no, trust me instead. The reason why people are so upset that Epstein is dead is because we weren't able to try him. Who knows if he killed himself? Maybe he was murdered in jail because maybe he knew something. But we're upset that Jeffrey Epstein, this, this pedophile, this, this evil rapist man, we're angry that he, were, he did not get tried because we wanted to see justice. But as believers, I know this. He is facing justice right now. He's facing the full wrath of God for what he did. So when it seems like the wealthy are getting away with it, know that they're not. God is keeping score and that should give us patience. Because remember, we were, we're evil too. We've sinned too. We've fallen short. We have purposefully sinned against God and we deserve the wrath of God as well. But if you have repented and placed your faith in Christ because you know you accepted the mercy that God has offered you. So instead, when you get, next time you get ripped off by a roommate, your boss, your professor, Give it to God first. Pray to God first. Pray that, he, pray that you will trust in his ultimate justice. If your boss is ripping you off, pray first. Then bring it to them and then bring it to the superior. But don't trust in the superior to bring you justice. Trust that God eventually will. Bring, bring it up to your professor superior. Bring it up to your roommate. But again, don't trust in the here and now, but trust that God's ultimate judgment is coming, so be patient. And instead, show compassion, the same compassion that God is showing you, show to them as a witness to them. To say, you know what, I'm gonna show you grace and compassion. And they're gonna, why are you so patient with me? I'm a jerk. I'm ripping you off. Why are you letting me get away with it? You can go, because God has saved me. God has shown mercy on me. How can I not show mercy to you? And share with them the greatest treasure that you have, which is the gospel. But do please trust that God is keeping score. Maybe some of you don't, don't know what it's like, but I know what it's like when someone is keeping very close score on me. And it was in college. 
I think only Kellen and I might experience this, but I don't think any of you will experience the fear of being late for a workout. Some of you just say, I don't even work out. I don't care. Some of you work out for fun. That's great. When I was in college, and I'm assuming Kellen as well, we were forced to work out. But given, given we wanted to be the best college athlete as possible, I played college football, FYI. But I feared my strength coach because that's his job. He's supposed to instill fear in us to make sure that we do what we do. I don't want to do a bunch of burpees. I don't want to do, lift these heavy weights. I don't want to run. I hate running, especially sprints. But I fear my strength coach's threats more. So I do them instead. I feared my strength coach so much that I did everything in my power never to be late. I like my guy. He's a nice guy. He's a great guy. I, I, I like to reach out to him every once in a while. But man, I was so scared to be late. And by the way, if you're five minutes early, you're late in his time. And as a result of my four years of college, I was only late once. And the only reason I was late is because I somehow slept through 10 alarms. I set 10 alarms on my phone all the time. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. I sleep through alarms all the time. And usually I wake up because she's kicking my back. Saying, wake up. I put it on the other side of the room. Doesn't matter. I still sleep through it. She'll kick me and wake me up. In which, I'm, I'm sorry, babe. <laughs> but again, I feared my strength coach. I did everything possible. I ashamedly did break some driving laws. Don't do that. Don't compromise. You're a witness for Christ. Obey the driving laws. Take the punishment. Don't disobey the law. But I also made sure I had extra workout clothes in my room just in case I was running late. So I can just throw on these clothes and run right into the weight room to make sure I was not late. And thankfully I was only late once. But again, it's a threat that it wasn't a warning it was, if you do this, this will happen. And as a result, I was late. I walked in with the head down. I made a quick eye contact with my coach. He didn't say a word. He just pointed. So I walked over. I walked over to the Stairmaster. I just went on the Stairmaster. He kept pushing the speed up faster and faster. So I was on the Stairmaster for an hour and a half. And then I had to do the workout that I missed. And that was just the first punishment because I knew I was never late again ever since because I knew what was next was a workout with the head coach at five in the morning rather than the normal six and he would dictate the workout and as we I was part of the early workout crew coming in at six I would see the guys who kept were late and late who didn't heed the threat of the strength coach or the head coach and they were out there on the field since five and actually sometimes if you get worse it's 4 30 in the morning out there, throwing up, getting yelled at because they didn't heed their warning. But I did. I just was on the Stairmaster once and I never did it again. But God is trying to give us a warning. So Bridge, as you are in this prime time in your life in college, as you're, as you're trying to make plans for your future and your career, Heed the warning that God is sending to those who are pursuing wealth only for themselves and trust that he's taking an account. What are you pursuing? What are you trying to gain? Don't fall into the trap. Let this warning be a warning to you. This will happen if you do not heed the warning. So, I'm going to pray up the worship team. So as we worship to God, worship, worship Him greatly. But also think about maybe what are you holding back? 
What, are you, what wealth are you holding back from this fellowship right here? What wealth are you holding back from Christ's bride? What wealth are you holding back from God's image? His image bears his, his people. And ask yourselves, am I using the wealth that God has given me? Am I pursuing wealth wrongly? So think about that as we worship our amazing God. Please bow your heads. God is, this is a sober and heavy warning that you are giving us. God, please allow us all to listen, myself included. Allow us to examine our motivations. Allow us to examine why we're doing what we're doing. How are we using the wealth that you've given us? And ultimately, how are we using the greatest wealth, the gospel? How are we using that to build up your kingdom here and now? So God, I pray that all of us heed the warning that you have for the evil use of wealth. So instead, Lord, let us be known as a people who use use our wealth to build up your kingdom and not our own. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.